Good morning, church. Uh, it's high attendance Sunday. We missed the mark. We did our okayest. We'll try again next Sunday. If you all want to just scooch on up to the front two pews, that'd be great. But uh, hey, good job getting out, being a safe driver. To those of you that are watching online or will watch online later, uh, grateful that you'd still make the uh, the effort to worship with us. <laughs> We're glad you're here. Glad you're here. Uh, would you open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there's a black one in the pew rack in front of you. And you'll find our passage on page 857 in those pew Bibles. And I want to encourage you to take a few notes. Uh, and so if you've got a pen and paper, something to write on, then uh, you're going to be in good shape this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17 is where we're going to spend our time today. If I were in charge of the show Antiques Roadshow, I would rename it, You Don't Know What You're Looking At. That's the basic premise of every single interaction on the show. Someone comes up, they put a thing on the table, and viewers and owners alike, we're all in the same boat. We have no idea what we're looking at. We don't understand the value of the thing. But then when the dude in the bow tie explains it, our minds are blown and we think, well, of course, yes, this, this is a vase from the Ming Dynasty and not a compost bucket. Of course, it's priceless and incredible. And so when the guy explains it, the person explains it, then finally we understand the incredible value of the thing that we're looking at. Now today we're going to study the story of the baptism of Jesus. And it's very possible that when it comes to this story, you don't know what you're looking at. You don't understand the incredible value of it. You don't know how important it is, how precious this scene is. You have an idea that it's important because, I mean, after all, it's in the Bible and it's about Jesus. But this scene is not so straightforward and therefore it, it can be a challenge for us to value it properly. So if I were to ask you, to show me a part of the Bible that describes Christ's love for sinners. Well, you might go to John chapter 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet and commands his disciples to love each other the way he's loved them. And if I were to ask you to show me a part of the Bible that describes Christ's incredible power, you might take me to Luke chapter 8, where Jesus commands a storm to calm down, and it does just that. And those aren't wrong answers. Those are right answers. But it might be helpful if you knew that the baptism of Christ is where both his love and power are displayed together at the same time. And how important is it for us to know that Christ loves us? It's of immense importance because in those seasons of life, if you've been there where you question the love of God for you, those are seasons inevitably of panic, fear, anxiety, personal terrors of all kind. It's essential for you and I to know that we are loved by Christ. And how important is it for you and I to know Christ's power for us? Well, when the enemy rages against us, when life is in turmoil, when kids are sick, when our marriages are hurting, or when our health is tenuous, we need a powerful Savior. 
And it's Christ's love and his power that are displayed fully in his baptism. There's no such thing as a healthy Christian who undervalues the love and power of Christ. And there's no such thing as a joyless Christian who overvalues the love and power of Jesus. And so my goal today is to explain the baptism of Jesus so that you would value Jesus properly. You may come in this morning valuing him highly, but our assessment of his baptism today, my prayer is that it will increase your value of Christ significantly. In this passage, it explains the value of Jesus through two different stories. It's one whole scene, but two stories that explain to us the all-surpassing value of Jesus Christ. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Last week we met John the baptizer, the last of the prophets, who announces the coming of the Messiah. And today, chapter 3, verse 13, the Messiah arrives. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This one scene, we don't understand the value of it, how important it is. But it speaks to us of both Christ's love and his power to accomplish our salvation. And so if you've come in here struggling today, man, good for you getting through the weather and the muck and every reason to stay home today, not just weather-related, but maybe heart-related. But you've come here today because you need to see Jesus. You need to hear from him. And so I want to show you in this passage two stories that explain the all-surpassing value of Jesus. Why is Jesus so valuable? The first reason is because Jesus' baptism tells us of his love that saves us. This is the first story in this scene. It's a story of his love that saves us. So on this particular day, Jesus comes to John the baptizer to be baptized. And let's talk about the geography of the scene for just a moment. Verse 13 tells us that Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. The distance from Galilee, the region called Galilee, down to the region in the wilderness of where the Jordan River meets the Dead Sea, that distance is roughly 70 miles This tells us that Jesus makes this trip intentionally. He doesn't just stumble on John in some random coincidence, but he goes to John directly and intentionally for the purpose of this baptism. And I think it's worth pointing out again and always remembering when we come to chapter 3 that Jesus doesn't begin his public ministry in Jerusalem, not in the temple. 
not with sacrifices and priests, but he went to the wilderness to be baptized in the Jordan River by the last of the prophets. And I love John's reaction to Jesus in verse 14. Already we've seen John's great with reactions to people. Last week, Pharisees and Sadducees show up and he says, brood of vipers, who invited you to this baptism party? Uh, And now Jesus shows up and he has another great reaction in verse 14. Look at it with me. It says, John tried to stop Jesus and he said, I need to be baptized by you and yet you come to me. So why did John resist at first? Well, I want you to consider what he's already told us about Jesus in the previous passage. He said Jesus is more powerful. He's more worthy than John. He has his own baptism, a baptism of a Holy Spirit and fire. He's the one that the prophets foretold of. He's the promised one that's going to accomplish salvation for God's people. And so just that in and of itself places Jesus above John and John infinitely below Jesus. John's baptism was for people who were confessing sin and turning to God in repentance. But Jesus didn't need that baptism. As the perfectly obedient Son of God. He was sinless. He had no sins to confess. He had no sins to repent from. And so if you're new to Christianity or new to theological thinking, here's something that you have to understand about Jesus. This is center bullseye Christian belief. Jesus is fully God. He is not the man who was chosen by God. He is not the man who became God. He is not half man and half God. He is fully God and fully human all at the same time. This this is not up for theological debate. This is not just a Baptist thing or a South Shore thing. If you do not believe this, you cannot properly call yourself Christian. And so Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully human as well. And so he doesn't need this baptism for the sake of confession of sin or repentance from sin. And his visit to John is not some magical way in which he transforms into the Son of God. He arrives fully God, fully divine. And so why the baptism? That's the big question. Well, Jesus answered us and John in verse 15. Look at it. He says, allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? That this is how he will fulfill all righteousness. Two words explain this enigmatic statement from Jesus. Those words are obedience and identification. What does he mean by this will fulfill all righteousness? It's speaking of obedience and identification. Here's what I mean. First of all, let's talk about obedience. To fulfill righteousness, to fulfill all righteousness means to do all that righteousness requires. So all righteousness requires Jesus to be obedient completely and fully to God the Father. So even though Jesus was the sinless, virgin-born, God-in-the-flesh Messiah, He desired to be wholly obedient to God the Father. By submitting to John's baptism, He's endorsing the message that He is the Messiah and salvation will go through Him. And so Jesus will be obedient all the way, completely, totally, 
to accomplish all that righteousness requires. And not only will he be obedient in baptism, but you and I know something that John the baptizer doesn't know. Jesus will be obedient even to the point of death on a cross. You see, Matthew, in his gospel, portrays Jesus as the last Adam, whose obedience is necessary for God's people to experience the blessings of salvation. So Jesus' baptism by John is the beginning of his mission as the obedient son, the the chosen servant who will do what the Father has willed in order to redeem his people. So baptism, Jesus' baptism, is an act of obedience that signals his commitment to the will of the Father. What does it mean that this will fulfill all righteousness? It means Jesus is committed to obey all the Father requires of him for our salvation. But this baptism also speaks about his identification, specifically his identification with sinners. So when Jesus says this is to fulfill all righteousness, it doesn't just mean he's going to do what righteousness requires, but he will share His perfect righteousness with people who have broken righteousness. So John's baptism was for sinful people who were coming to God through confession of their sin and repentance from sin, right? It's not righteous people who get baptized, it's sinful people who get baptized. So when Jesus gets baptized, he is identifying with sinners. He himself is not a sinner, he's the sinless, perfect God man. But by identifying with sin, by being baptized, he's identifying with sinners. Now, he's not affirming their sin, nor is he saying that he's a partaker with them in their sin. But rather, he is saying that he's willing to be counted as if he were a sinner. In his humble baptism, he consents to be counted as if he is a sinner with everyone else. And this foreshadows the cross where he will die for the sins of his people as if he himself were a sinner. His baptism is the picture of his ultimate sacrifice as the final high priest. So when Jesus says he'll be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness, he's saying he will be righteous like the new Adam in his perfect obedience to the Father's will. And he will provide perfect righteousness for us as the Lamb of God so that we might become the righteousness of God. We read those words at the very outset of our worship service this morning so that when we get here to the water with Jesus, we would have an idea of what it means for him to fulfill all righteousness. Now, in the scene just before this one, do you remember who showed up to evaluate John's work. It was a delegation of religious power brokers, Pharisees and Sadducees. These two different uh, Jewish sects are represented in that delegation. The Pharisees are legalists. The Sadducees are elitists. And these groups act as if they are the judges of people's souls. And so when they looked at John that day and the people around him, it's safe to say they were indignant. Indignant at the message, indignant at the people. You see, the rulers of the people were not for the people. And then on another day, Jesus arrived. And he is the Messiah foretold by the prophets. 
the focus of John's message, the creator of all things, the true judge of all souls. And he got in that dirty water and allowed a sinful prophet to baptize him as a foretaste of the day when other sinners would nail him to a cross. The Pharisees and Sadducees hated sinful people. Jesus loves sinful people. He came for sinful people. He died for sinful people. He rose for sinful people. He loves you. He's not ashamed of you. He loves you. Sinner that you are, broken, hurting, failure, mess up, every negative thing you call yourself and the enemy calls you over and over again, you are loved by Christ. His baptism is proof of that. He'll do everything your righteousness requires. He'll accomplish it all out of love. Love for the Father and love for you, those that he has come to save. That's what makes this story so incredible and Jesus so valuable is that he is a Savior who loves us. But there's a second story in this scene that explains Jesus' incredible value. And that second story is this. Jesus' baptism tells us of his power to save us. It tells us of his power to save us. First, the first story in this scene is about his love. The second story in this scene is about his power. And so in verses 16 and 17, we have the event of his baptism and what follows after. It's astonishing uh, that Jesus would be baptized to begin with, but what happens immediately after his baptism is almost too great, too incredible for our imaginations. So look at verses 16 and 17 with me. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. One thing that is helpful for us in our study of Matthew's gospel is the way we're approaching it. We're, we're taking it sort of segment by segment. And that's valuable for burrowing down into the details of things. But one thing you want to be sure to do in our study of Matthew is every now and then pull back to 30,000 feet and look at the big picture. Don't just read the tiny little segment that we study on a given Sunday, but maybe in your quiet time with Jesus in the week following, take a large swath and read it. And here's what you'll see if you were to start reading at the beginning of chapter 3, Matthew is lining up witnesses to testify to who Jesus is. And who's the first witness in chapter 3? The first witness is John the baptizer, the last of the prophets. And who's the next witness that Matthew brings forward to testify to Jesus? It is God the Holy Spirit who descends like a dove. And who's the next witness to testify to the person of Jesus? It is God the Father who spoke audibly on this day. Witness after witness called to the stand to testify to you of who Jesus is. This scene is mind-boggling in its glory. Almost incomprehensible to our finite brains. But Matthew wants us to understand as much as limited human language can communicate the incredible value and power of Jesus here. Now, it would seem from this scene that what was seen and heard that day was seen and heard by everyone in attendance. 
Those who were there saw the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove, and they heard the voice of God the Father. So what's the meaning of the coming of the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove? Well, the descent of the Holy Spirit is a reminder of a well-known messianic prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Pastor Steve read it just a little bit ago in Isaiah chapter 42, where God says he will place his spirit on his chosen servant. That same language is found in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 61, as well as Isaiah 42 that we read earlier this morning. Now, at this point, Holy Spirit descends like a dove on Jesus who has just been baptized. Does that mean that Jesus was without the Holy Spirit before this moment? No, that's not what that means. Uh, You'll remember that even just in Matthew's gospel back in chapter 1, he attributes Christ's birth to the Holy Spirit. But then also, you and I as students of the Bible with a, a fully Trinitarian understanding of our God recognize that Jesus is never, the Son is never without the Spirit, is never without the Father. The Son is eternally fully God in eternal perfect communion with the Spirit and with the Father. Jesus is never not with the Holy Spirit. But what happens in this moment is more so for the sake of perhaps Christ and His humanity and for those who are present and later witnesses as well. As the Spirit comes down, Jesus is visibly equipped and commissioned to undertake His messianic mission. If He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, then He has to be endowed with the Holy Spirit. And so why is it then that the Holy Spirit looks like a dove? If you were to go read different commentators, inevitably they're going to take you back to Noah's Ark because there's a dove in that story. And they'll try to draw a connection maybe between the, the chaos of the flood and the presence of the dove as, a, as, as God's presence of peace. And, and then here's the dove again. And that, there's something convincing there. There's a connection there for sure. But it's not so cut and dry that there's great meaning in the dove itself. I like what one theologian said about this, a guy named R.T. France. He said, there's no reason to assume that the species of bird here is significant. The dove is simply a familiar bird whose swooping flight formed an appropriate way of visualizing the descent of the spirit. Could have been any bird. Uh, but it was a dove, and what's most vital is not what type of bird it was, but what it communicates to those of us who are reading and those who were in attendance, that here is God the Holy Spirit coming to rest on the chosen servant of salvation. Then in verse 16, after the Spirit has descended, verse 17, the Father speaks. And hear what God says. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Up to this point, it had been 400 years since God had spoken like this. Four centuries of silence broken in this moment. The words of God in this simple statement can be found in various places, piecemealed throughout the Old Testament. You could find references where similar language is found in the Old Testament and then piece those together into this one completed sentence. 
And uh, that's a good exercise, and, and it will be a helpful exercise for you to do. But I want you to understand that the power of this sentence is not because it is a repeat of what someone else said, but because God the Father has spoken His love for this man, His servant who has just been baptized by John. What God says in this verse is not an Old Testament quote in total. It has touch points in the Old Testament, but this is God the Father speaking His delight and affection for God the Son. What happened on this day at the Jordan River is like what happened in Exodus 19 when Moses heard and saw God. And it's like what happened in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah heard and saw God. And it's like what happened in Ezekiel chapter 1 when Ezekiel heard and saw God. The the $3 word that belongs to this scene is theophany, the appearance of God. Of God. We see him and we hear him at the Jordan River on this day. This was an intense manifestation of the presence of God, and it is a Trinitarian presence. It is God the Son who is baptized. It is God the Spirit who descends like a dove. It is God the Father who speaks in this moment. And again, it does not take place in the temple or on Mount Sinai or in the throne room of heaven. And it wasn't attended by seraphim and saints. The triune God appeared on the muddy banks of the Jordan River to an audience of wet, sinful, common men and women, people like me and you. Those people came that day confessing their sins. How much forgiveness do you think they received from their triune God on that day? Was he powerful enough to forgive their sin? Oh, more powerful than they could ever imagine. Because you and I have both been there when we've come confessing and we've wondered, is there forgiveness for me? And he is powerful enough to forgive Every sinner who comes confessing. And the people who came to the Jordan River on that day, they came repenting from their sin. And how sweetly do you think they were received by their triune God? Was he powerful enough to take these common, anonymous, sinful nobodies and to receive them as his own family? Oh, far more powerful than they ever imagined. Because you and I have been in that same place where we would think, would he receive even me, the sinner like me, someone messed up like me, someone who's just going to fail again like me. And yet, the power of Christ is such that he takes us and turns us into his brothers and sisters, his family. Those who are far away, he brings near. And nothing can snatch us out of his hands. Oh, we look at this scene and we think how incredible it is that this happened on this day. But how much more are you forgiven and accepted through the Son who died for you and the Holy Spirit who indwells you and the Father who has justified you? God's power for you is immeasurable, infinite, omnipotent for your salvation. There is nothing He would not do and has not done He brings you near and holds you forever. In his baptism, we see his power to save us. So let me ask you, we take this story 
sit it on the table in front of you. Do you know what you're looking at when you look at Christ's baptism? You're looking at love and power. Not love in some small amount, not power in a little bit, but infinite love, infinite power. He loves you enough to give his life for your salvation, and he is powerful enough to complete it. So what do you do now with this knowledge of Christ's all-surpassing value? What are you supposed to do with that at this point? It's like the bow-tied person has said, here's why this is so precious. Now you've got to decide, what are you going to do with this thing that is far more valuable than you ever imagined? Well, the Apostle Paul had this kind of experience, and he talked about it in his letter to the church in Philippi. He discovered the true value of Jesus, and when he did, it wrecked him in the best way. I want you to look at what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He said, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ. Paul, what about your career? My, my whole life is Christ. Paul, what about your goals you've had since you were a little boy? My whole life is Christ. Paul, what about your portfolio, your resume? My whole life is Christ. Paul, this whole crowd says this is a better way to go. And Paul says, my whole life is Christ. And everyone says, Paul, what about these trophies, these accomplishments? It's all garbage. My whole life is Christ. Nothing is as valuable as him. Christ who loves us. Christ who is powerful for us. He's worth everything. He doesn't call you today to just be a little bit better in your morality and in your ethics. The call today is to follow him in this baptism, in this full life immersion into Jesus. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, today you've heard this story. You have to consider whether you want to possess Christ as your greatest treasure or just hold on to everything else that is ultimately garbage. This isn't to say people in your life are garbage or, or, or everything about you is garbage. It's just to say that in comparison, will I have my old life or do I want Christ? There is no comparison to be found between the value of these two things. He calls you to love him supremely. Make him the Lord of your life. And his promise to you today is he loves you He's powerful enough to save you if you will turn to him in faith. And what's more, this story meets every believer at their point of need. The triune God appears in the muck of your life to lift you and to put you on solid ground. If I'm a follower of Jesus, one of the questions I would ask myself as I think about applying this to my life is I would ask a question about baptism. Have you been baptized? And in our region of the country, when we talk about baptism, more often than not, people are going to think about their childhood, might think about an infant baptism, and that's not what we're talking about. One of the reasons I love our understanding of Scripture is the explanation that baptism is for believers. This is why we don't baptize infants or people who are unwilling participants. Baptism is the announcement of salvation. It's not the conduit of salvation. It's the proclamation that by faith I have given my life to Christ and I'm His. 
I'm plunging myself all the way into Him. And so in baptism, we tell the story of our identification with Christ. He identifies with us in His baptism, and we identify with Him in our baptism when we die to ourselves and we are buried in the baptismal waters and we are raised to walk in newness of life. We share in His death, burial, and resurrection. If you're a believer but you have not been baptized, I want you to seriously consider and let's have a conversation about what this would mean and look like in your life so that you would follow in obedience to Christ just as He followed in obedience to the Father. And above all else, brothers and sisters, we must value Christ supremely, supremely, without wavering, without blushing, without shame, you and I would value Him supremely so that in the midst of our hurting marriages and struggling relationships, advanced illnesses, and every other kind of sinful brokenness, we would find a Savior who loves us and who is greater than all these things. He will not fail you. He delights in you. You are His beloved. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for bringing us to the Jordan River today to see this story. To see the Holy Spirit descend on the Son, to hear the Father speak over the Son, to see the Son fulfill all righteousness. We've seen glory in print. Jesus, thank you for doing all that was required to fulfill all righteousness for our salvation. And God, the Holy Spirit, we praise you that you live in believers. You are not outside of us, beyond us. You are in us and with us. We praise you for that presence. And to you, God, our Father, we thank you for so great a salvation as this that you have willed and put in place for us. So I pray this morning that you would draw us to you, that we would leave every bit of comparable garbage behind, and we would hold Christ as our supreme value. Bring salvation to those who would turn to you in faith and repentance, and bring strength and renewal to your children who today would come and find love and power that heals and restores once again. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's sing of his power to save. Would you please stand as we sing?